0: Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Tori.
1: And I'm Adi, and today we're thrilled to have Carrie Aspinwall with us. Hi guys. Carrie Aspinwall is a Dallas-based staff writer for the Marshall Project. After graduating from Oklahoma State University in 2001, she began an award-winning tenure at the Tulsa World where she reported on the impact of the criminal justice system on minorities, women, and children in the American South. In 2015, she was a Pulitzer Prize finalist in local reporting for her work uncovering flaws in Oklahoma's execution process. Her latest piece for the Marshall Project discusses the legacy and future of the criminal justice system for tribal citizens in Oklahoma.
2: Well, thank you for
0: giving all that in.
2: Little light subject matter for your podcast today.
0: Yes. Well, thank you so much for joining us. So to begin on a lighter note, uh, we'd like to tailor to our student listeners. So Carrie, can you think of a piece of advice that a mentor figure gave you early in your career that has really stuck with you?
2: Well, you know, my experience in news is kind of different than a lot of the folks that I work with, because now I work for a national news news organization, but I've always been a local reporter. And so very often, my mentors, when I was a young reporter working, were just local news folks like me, like court reporter, the bosses I had who helped me out. Um, so they were just very kind, I think, and, and helpful. And I've always tried to take that forward and have the same attitude when young reporters want help for things or they have a question about records because it was so helpful to me and I didn't you know I wasn't interning at the New York Times (laughs) that wasn't my experience and it was very much local news and learning how to talk to people and treat people and be fair and kind of understand where they're coming from because it is different when you live in a community and you report on that community Mm -hmm. Um, I miss it sometimes you know I worked for the Tulsa World for a long time I worked for the Arizona Republic for a little bit when I was young and then I was a community reporter there, and I worked for the Dallas Morning News here in Dallas before. And every time I'd go up a level and that you kind of, and I think some of that's the way that the media model has changed too, that people aren't as uh, engaged with their local paper as much anymore, and that's really hurt. You see a lot of that. A lot of that going on right now with the election and people not understanding everything going on. You kind of wonder what's lost from those newspapers really having that influence and having people read and engage with them. Because I can remember, being a young reporter in Tulsa, and I would meet people, like the pharmacist would hand me my prescription in the drive-thru and be like, oh, I read your story in the paper, you know? And I miss that. I really, uh, now that I work for this organization, I feel somewhat remote, far away from people I'm writing about, and I try to bridge that gap, especially now that everything's by phone or Zoom. It's really hard, because I am very much a reporter who came up going and sitting down and talking to people in person I still like to do that but it is really hard now especially when you're writing about vulnerable communities vulnerable populations normally I'd be going into jails and prisons to do these stories and right now I can't because they won't allow visitors even if I'm masked up and you know willing to take the risk they just can't take that risk right now um so it's hard when we lose that and I hate that but I think you know that's what I would always tell young uh Students when they're coming out, especially ones that are wanting to go into media or these kind of jobs, is it, it's okay to start small. You don't have to start. At the New York. Everyone wants to start at like the New York Times, the Washington Post, or the Marshall Project, but I certainly didn't. I started small, and I learned so much from those small town reporters and the and the people, the local heroes who do that work. Um, and they, you know, they still kind of are my heroes. If you look at some of the really cool reporting that's going on with the election you know, it's the people from the Atlanta paper or the Phoenix paper, or those local TV people that do good work. that are kind of giving us the really good dart about what's going on. And so, I, you know, I, I was just trying to, <laughs> I was raised and brought up in a model where you had to be like humble and the older reporters and editors kind of built that humility into you, whether you had it or not. So I always try to keep that in mind. And, be, um, you know, you, I think in life, you sort of learn to imitate good bosses or bad bosses. So I've always tried to like imitate the good ones or the good people that I liked instead of the bad ones. Cause you, you can see in life where you get a boss and you think, Oh, they're imitating bad bosses. They had, <laughs> this is not great. So think about that when you go through your internships and when you work with people and, and try to carry the good habits that you see or model that stuff forward and, and
0: keep it with you always. That's great. Thank you.
1: So you mentioned that in the midst of a pandemic also you've had to be really flexible in the way that your job has sort of um i guess adjusted to the new circumstances can you talk to us a little bit about how the investigative part of investigative journalism has changed during the pandemic and some of the steps that you've taken to i guess work around those challenges
2: it's tough right like everything has to be done through not has to but it's just companies are taking precautions our company has rules that they put in place for travel and in-person interviews and guidelines. And we can't do everything remote, but they, there's a discussion that has to happen before we can travel and before we can go, because A, we don't want to be spreading germs around B. Most of my colleagues are in New York. And so when things got really bad, they were really bad and they couldn't go anywhere. They were locked in their apartments for so long, but it's hard. You know, there are court records that I need to see for stories. I'm, I'm one story I'm working on right now, And normally, I would just go down to the courthouse and pull the file and sit there and look through it. Well, some of the courthouses aren't okay with that right now. So you have to, like, email the court clerk, ask, can you image this file? And, you know, a lot of it's relying on the kindness of strangers, but it makes everything take longer and it's that much harder. Um, And then there's just stuff that gets put on hold. Like, I mean, I worry about criminal justice things because... The courts are just, in a lot of places, they're going. But a lot of places, there's just a complete standstill. You know, maybe traffic court's going. Eviction court is getting started again, which is really scary for people who are, you know, trying to make ends meet and not get kicked out of their house in a pandemic. But criminal courts, most felony criminal trials have been put on hold right now. They're trying to figure out how to do it in a pandemic. There's a lot of places trying to work around it. But uh, it's tough, right, because you have to call a jury. And how do you get a jury to show up? during a pandemic, if they're, you know, courtrooms are tight packed places normally, they're not great in terms of social distancing. And there have been some places, even in Texas, where they've done like a civil trial via Zoom or a traffic ticket trial. But all the big, you know, murder cases, big criminal trials are on hold. And that affects the due process rights of the people who are sitting in jail, who are waiting for their day in court. And I'm really worried about what's going to happen. Um, and I'm trying to dig into, dig into what is actually happening, but it's, um, it concerns me because I've covered this system for years and years and years, and it doesn't move quickly on a good day. <laughs> So this adds a whole other layer and it also removes the transparency that you need to happen in the system. You know normally you can just go sit in court and I know that there are some places because we've had some things that have gone on here. I mean there's been hearings about you know mask ordinances in cities or there's court hearings right now in some, about some of the election challenges and some of those are via Zoom and some are in person but on a normal on a normal system, you can just go sit in court and that's the transparency. It's open unless they specifically close the courtroom. you know it's supposed to be an open system. that's how it's supposed to work. and so I'm really I'm just concerned about the general transparency and I'm concerned about things like city council and <laughs> those kind of meetings. you know luckily, they tend to be they tend to have a, a you know like a TV version closer circuit cable version or the the meetings will be recorded and played back and left on the website now. So that is some transparency that. built into the system, but the courts don't operate like that. A lot of state courts, you can't bring cameras in. Still, it's kind of, some courts are better, some states are better about it, but Oklahoma and Texas have always been a little resistant to have cameras in the courtroom. And so it's a real conversation we're going to have to have now. And I think there could be some good that could come out of it because I think, you know, one thing we talk a lot about the Marshall Project is access to justice and obstacles that sometimes get keep people caught up in the system and trapped in it. And one of the things is people get thrown in court, uh, in jail for showing up late to court or missing their hearings. And often courthouses are confusing. They're big in big cities far away from where people live. So they don't have free parking. So for people who are living on the margins or don't have childcare or reliable transportation, those kind of things can often get them thrown in jail. So if we're doing court hearings on Zoom now, well, could we have always done things remotely for working mothers, for people who can't get You know, it seems silly now that we were throwing people in jail because they couldn't show up in person for a court hearing, but now all the judges can do it remotely. So I worry about that. I worry about the transparency. I mean, we're trying to dig into it and keep on top of it. The Marshall Project has a lot of reporters working on it, but it is it's tough. And I worry about the impact on local news because the thing about the pandemic is it's been devastating economically for a lot of the newspapers who rely on things like hotels and restaurants and commerce for advertising money for revenue. And, you know, it's hurt their budgets. So there's been layoffs, there's been cutbacks, and we're very lucky that we're not in that boat at the Marshall project, but all my friends that I grew up with and came up with in this business are stressing and you lose a lot when you don't have those kind of accountability and, um, you know, public service reporters at your local paper doing the hard work, digging into budgets, digging into, you know, I think about uh, a guy that I worked with at the Dallas paper, Dave McSwain, he works for Republican now, and he's doing this amazing work, digging into all this money that got shelled out to the, you know, by the federal government at the beginning of the pandemic and a panic. A lot of it was getting wasted, you know? So what is lost when you don't have that at the local level, when you don't have that kind of scrutiny? in your county courthouse, in your city hall. So that's the kind of stuff that I'm trying to, trying to do what I can on criminal justice, but it worries me a lot, especially for investigative reporting at the local level.
0: Yeah. Um, I think that it's really interesting how you have such kind of a background in local issues and local reporting. Now you're at a national organization, but would you be able to talk a little bit about how do people respond differently to local issues compared to national ones, and then how does that change your approach to journalism?
2: It's tough because I do think that it used to be more. There used to be more of a local engagement with your audience, um, and so people would used to get yelled at. It used to people we'll call maybe nasty voicemail messages. I mean, I did a story. Uh, When back when I was doing more feature writing in Tulsa, before I kind of moved on to investigative, I did a story about a a transgender girl, teen girl, Katie Hill, who had transitioned. She was born Luke and transitioned to Katie over the summer of her 15th birthday in rural Oklahoma. So this was a big deal in 2011. Like they weren't doing this. We didn't have a lot of cases of this where uh, you know, a kid had tried this and her family supported her. The school system actually really was did everything by the book to support her, but it was about how the other kids reacted and what Katie went through. Um, And it was a really, it seems silly now because there's been so much written about it. And it's not, yeah, I think people are kind of, not everybody, of course, but trans issues are still a huge obstacle for a lot of people and trans rights, but to do that story in 2011, I think in Oklahoma was kind of a big deal. Like the, pay, you know, we had to have a lot of conversations. It's a very conservative community. This is a real thing, and also out of concern for Katie because she was so young at the time, and we do not want to put her at risk. But I, you know, so we did that story. I had very bold editors, brave editors, and publishers, and I was so grateful to them for that. And we got such a good response from so much of the audience. And then some nastiness that you'd expect. But since you live there, like I got, people know me. So I got religious uh, literature shoved in my mailbox at my house by some of my neighbors who thought it was a message they were trying to send. So that's interesting. Sometimes you feel more the heat when you live there. Like I don't feel, you know, I don't necessarily feel as much heat when I write a national story now. You do get kind of just, I think because of some of the rhetoric that gets pushed around about the media and fake news you'll get these kind of, you know, haters on Twitter, or people that are just screaming into a void, and I don't know if they're yelling at me, or they're yelling at a system that they feel like doesn't hear them, or listen to them, or that they just, I don't know, I mean, it's it's tough, I, I really struggle with it, because I am such a local girl, and I'm like, oh, let's talk about this, but you can't. you know, I did have, a, one of my editors always taught me, like, just don't get into a fight with it. You can't, you know, don't engage them. That's all they want to do is fight. If they want to talk, they want to listen, you know, I'm here to answer questions all day long. But if people just want to fight, you're never going to, that's not a good use of your time. Um, So it's tough, you know, like, I don't know. It's interesting. Some of the stories that we had the most interesting reaction to this year that I did, we did a story about Live PD, the very, very popular a and show in Middle America. And our story, we were working on it, working on it, it was about how they had let police departments censor things, moments that they didn't want shown on the show. Um, and while we were getting ready to, like, publish into that story, the show got canceled because of things that were going on with Black Lives Matter, and Javier Ambler was a man in Austin. There was a local TV station and newspaper that had done a story about his death and Live PD's involvement. So all this bad PR is coming around and they get canceled. So we had to go ahead and push out our story sooner than we anticipated. The show was already canceled, but we had a feeling that it was so popular, they would try to bring it back at some point. But when you take on something that people love, that's a part of pop culture, oh, you hear about it. We, we got all kinds of nasty, you know, emails like you guys are just ruining it. And this is you know, police are heroes and, and, you know, the show it's nothing on its face that like it's fine to show police work as is but they were claiming that it was unedited unvarnished and that really wasn't the full truth is what the story proved and then we did another one about the thin blue line flag that you see at a lot of trump rallies and a lot of it's it's actually it started kind of as a symbol of mourning for police officers when someone's lost the line of duty it has that american flag with the blue line in the middle But we became really curious about it with um, all the protests that were going on and the counter protests. You would see this flag a lot and it's something that because there was an ambush of several Dallas police officers here in Dallas in 2016 when I first moved here, that was when I first had started to see it and I was really curious about it because I was raised like I was raised in the south and and then uh, great plain states and so I was always taught flag etiquette and I remember the first time I saw it I thought, That's weird. You're not supposed to alter the flag. What is that? What is going on here? And it's become very popular within the pro law enforcement communities and cops themselves. Um, So, we did a story about the history of it. And you get real strong reactions when you (laughs) talk about that. But we did talk to some police officers about their view on it because they do have a, you know, police work is tough, hard work and there is risk to it and it's very real. And so they feel it's sort of like a band of brothers thing. But there are other people who are like, yeah, it's not. You know you don't ever want a flag that shows an us versus them. like you're supposed to be police for everybody, one flag. so it's it's sometimes you dive into that thing and these are politically you know fraught <laughs> topics. Everything's a hot topic nowadays so um, but yeah, I, I the national thing, I guess somewhat you're. I feel somewhat more insulated from it. And I don't really like that. You know, sometimes the heat is bigger because you're, you've no idea where your story, my stories go international. And I'm like, why are people yelling at me in languages? Like, why are internet bots that I'm not sure are human yelling at? Like, I prefer, if I'm going to get yelled at, please let it be by a real person and not a, not a Russian bot on the internet. But um yeah, it's different. And, and you, it is a challenge for me because I've always been a local reporter. I just want to do like these local stories, but we have to zoom out and it can't just be like a Texas story or a, you know, it has to be a national kind of issue usually or something really, really, um, you know, the McGirt thing obviously is more of an Oklahoma specific issue that we wrote about, but it's such an unusual ruling; It has long-term repercussions and impact for a huge portion of Oklahoma. And it's just historically interesting because Oklahoma is a fascinating place with a really... Um, troubled and interesting, you know, story about how it came to be.
1: It does seem like whether you're working at the national level or at the local level, a through line throughout most of your career, and maybe like in all good journalism, is that you always try to start a discussion, raise awareness for an issue, or try to demand some kind of change. And in that process of crafting a story or profiling a certain group, um, what kinds of parts or components in your story are most, have been most effective to sort of bring about that change or like start that discussion in a productive way?
2: Well, you know, I think about this a lot because we, we talk at the Marshall Project a lot about criminal justice and injustice. And we kind of have like this built-in audience of lawyers and people that work in the justice system or who are very, very obsessed with it and keep up with it and they know our work and familiar with it but I work out here in the real world. And the, so I'm all the time having to explain to regular people what the Marshall Project is, because they haven't heard of us. You know, It's a national thing among journalists, among lawyers, among people who keep up with that stuff, they know what it is. A lot of people became more familiar with our work because of Unbelievable, the Marshall Project Holoka, um, collaboration that won a Pulitzer many years ago after we launched. Um, and it became a Netflix series that was very popular, Unbelievable. Um, and so that really, I think, exposed us to a whole new audience, but I'm all the time I'm thinking about how do we reach those people who aren't already reading us? Because if we're just reaching people who already love us, people who already agree with us, then we're not really doing our job. And that's been a big part of why I stay out in this part of the country is because I don't want to just preach to the choir. I want to challenge people with these stories and do tough work and make them think about it. We talked about the story about Katie Hill, the transgender teen in Tulsa. One of my proudest moments with that story is that I would have people come up to me um, in Tulsa at events or, think, you know, when I run into them. And they talk about that story. It was a real talker. It <laughs> definitely a talker for the town. But it was a very challenging story for our audience. We knew that it would take a lot of ideas that they had or they, were, they might be a little uncomfortable with it because they hadn't really thought about it. And we wanted to to put it out there and show this, but show it as a very human story. And part of how we did that was we told the story of her mother. Her mother's just a Jazlyn is a country girl from Oklahoma, and she didn't know the first thing about <laughs> how do you raise a transgender child, what do you do with this? So she just did what a good mother does, and like go find an expert and talk to the community so Like just do what you do if you love your child, you want to give them the best advantages in life. So the story had a lot of that in there. And so when people would stop me and talk to me about it, they'd say, you know, I never thought that would be something that I would understand or agree with. I hadn't, it just seemed so far away from my life and so different, but I, I kind of get it now. Like I saw it through her eyes and I thought, well, God, what would I do if that were my child? And they came to me and said that, I'd, I like to think I'd do what she did, you know? And so that just really stuck with me. And I always think about that that if I can have somebody come up to me and say, you know, I thought I, th- I thought one way about this story, but you kind of made me, rethink. even if they don't agree with it, even if they don't love everything about it, but if I make it, the- they'll read all the way to the end and then want to talk about it or want to think about it or they say, I don't know about all that. <laughs> it's kind of what happened with the execution reporting with the uh, Ziba Bransetter and I did for the Tulsa World. And that was what you mentioned, you know, we got the uh, Pulitzer finals nod for. Because we had a tough audience for that. Like when you do execution reporting and you work for a national publication or somebody in Europe or you know European, European media, it's a very different audience you're writing to. They're very anti-death penalty. They're very um, convinced it's a bad thing. It's you know evil. And we have this horrible situation: the execution of Clayton Lockett in 2014 that went got all kinds of screwed up. And they basically the drugs, the IVs didn't go in right. They um, they had, were using a new combination of drugs, and they're not, you know, it was pretty clear that he was not properly anesthetized before it happened. Um, and they had assured the Supreme Court and the people of Oklahoma that they could do this humanely, and that didn't happen. And it was a complete freak show. It was horrible for the people who witnessed it. And we had to write about what happened and why to an audience in Oklahoma that believed that he. I I mean, this sounds really harsh to young uh, college students, but they believed that that's what he had coming to him because of what he had done in life. He had raped and murdered a very innocent young woman and raped and attacked two other people as part of the, the crime. And, you know, he never really showed much remorse for it. So we had to somehow report on what the state of Oklahoma did to Clayton Lockett while never making him out to be a saint and always being 100% honest about who he was and what he did and the pain he caused, but also about what happened to him. And we really, we got a lot of flack, not everybody in Oklahoma liked the way that we did that story, but we got people talking about it, you know? And it really, they had one, they tried to do one execution, they did do one execution after that and they screwed up, they used the wrong drugs on Charles Warner and then they almost executed another man, but that got stayed and stayed because of what they had done wrong on the other one. So Oklahoma hasn't had any executions in all these years since. So I like to think that we got them thinking about things differently and, and examining what really happened. I and mean, there were a lot of reporters who did a lot of good work on that, but the Clayton locket thing, you see that and you're like, okay, how do we tell this story and tell the truth? Always tell the damn truth, but present it in a way that maybe makes people think differently about it. And then. I remember Zeva and I having <laughs> to take like a million phone calls from all those stories from all these old men in Oklahoma calling up and going, now I don't like y'all saying that this execution was botched because he died. So that's mission accomplished is what they said. And you know, this is the attitude, you may not like it, but this is the attitude of a lot of people in America. And part of my job as a journalist is to talk to them and engage with them and try to explain why I'm doing this even you know you can think whatever you want but you've got to try and talk to folks and so we would just sit there and hear them out and say I understand you know he was not a nice man I know how you, I get it but you know if for argument's sake this is a system that costs people a lot of money this is your, your tax dollars paying for this and if you believe that it, capital punishment is okay and that it should be the law of the land And that's what you want to happen. Well, then the state has to abide by the rules and they have to do things like they're screwing it up. They're going to get this ruled unconstitutional because they screwed it up. So you kind of would walk them through that argument and they'd kind of hear you, you know, maybe there's humorous. But, um, and it's tough, right? Because there are, that's a very (laughs) uh, fractured issue. People on death penalty, it's like all or nothing. People are vehemently opposed to it or they're vehemently for it. There's not a lot of gray area, but... In these cases, when you're writing about, there actually is a lot of, you know, like it's, I, it's a tough thing to explain to people, and it's a weird job. I mean, the fact that I had witnessed several executions before that, and nothing, you know, it's a strange work when you think about it. But I always try to think about that with the stories we do, and trying to reach people who aren't already reading us, and who maybe didn't think that they would like a story about a transgender teen in Oklahoma or a man that was not a great man but was tortured and killed by the state of Oklahoma inhumane.ly So that's, you know, it's tough. I like complicated (laughs) stories. I like things that are messy and I like things that aren't like easy answers and murky. I live in the murky. So I also like stories about murder, which is just, (laughs) I'm not sure what that says about me.
0: Well, yes, as as you're discussing a lot of your work covers topics like violence and murder and corruption or police brutality and more, all of which are, as you've said, very kind of heavy topics. So my question is, where have you found hope in your work to and what keeps you kind of working through such heavy, saddening topics?
2: you know it's it's tough like it can the work gets really dark sometimes and it's hard it's <laughs> feeling like sometimes it's hard to have hope but um i like people i like meeting people i in doing these stories i meet the most wonderful people sometimes that i you know i enjoy engage or <laughs> sometimes it's not always meet nice people but i i like the people i meet and i'm reminded of um you know their humanity I, you try to bring humanity to people that Don't maybe get a fair shake, you know, sometimes you'll find, you'll go back and find an old story in the reporting of something, and you'll find something where someone wasn't really given a fair shot, and you can kind of give it a a new, give them a new chance, and and be more fair, and get the truth out there, but every now and then you have something that is a success, you know, it's tough, It, it takes a while, like, you want everything to happen right away, but there was a story I did in Oklahoma And it happened as an accident, honestly. We were, we, you know, all the time we get records. Our stories have to be based on records a lot of times because people demand that level of proof when you're doing, like, it's tough. People don't always believe what we're writing. So we try to do everything on records. And we always try to think about where we can get the records. And we found out that we, uh, prisoners in Oklahoma, uh, if they want to get married while they're incarcerated, they have to fill out a form. So, as a record, as a reporter, I was thinking, Oh, I'm gonna get those forms. <laughs> it's gonna be interesting. Let's just let's get these forms and see what we can learn about this. And the idea was like, Oh, well, let's. Who wants to marry a murderer? Like, who's applying to marry murderers in the state of Oklahoma? That's weird, you know, because it does it happens. And it took forever because these are paper forms, and we had to collect them from every prison in Oklahoma. So it took a long time. And, you know, I had the stack of papers and I'm sorting them out. And so I'm sorting, they had to explain how they knew the person and what the charge was that they were in for. So I sorted out all the mur- murderers and I called these, they had to put their phone number on the form. So I called up these women and not everybody wants to talk to you about the murderer that they married or the person that they was accused of murder. But I, I called up this girl and she had this beautiful name, Sermonia, And they were from Tulsa and they were on the form. It said, how did you know each other? And they, she said, we've known each other since middle school. And I look, I was like, okay. <laughs> and that would happen a lot. There would be somebody who knew the person from before when they were children and then they fell back in love with them later. But I called her up and she was just as bright and sweet and open as she could be and very young. And I was like, you know, she's just, oh yeah, I'm out to talk to you. her. Her husband's name was Jessel. And it kind of put me back because some of the people were very closed off, not wanting to talk about the case. It's tough. These are people who've been through a lot in life and been through trials and they've been in prison. So it's, I get that not everybody wants a reporter calling them up and getting into their business, but she was so open. She's like, oh yeah, now let me talk to you about Jessel. And I was like, okay, so you guys knew each other since middle school. <laughs> she's like, oh yeah, he's my middle school boyfriend. You know, Jessel got put in when he was 15 and she's like, he got a real bad deal. And that's, as an investigative reporter, people tell you that all the time. You get all these families calling and they, you know, like it's tough you have a high you have to be very skeptical to be a reporter you always have to like check things out so when she first told me that i was like sure okay tell me what happened like how, how did jessel get a bad deal and she told me and i just didn't believe it i was like that doesn't seem like something issue." he was 15 at the time that he was convicted but he was 13 at the time of the crime and he knocked on the door for his older cousin who was like a father figure to him and they were you know was trying, they'd inducted Jessel into their gang and he knocked on the door, and his older cousin shot somebody. And so they they uh, charged and convicted him with first degree murder, and he was sent away to adult prison at 15 years old for his entire life. And there was, this was in the 90s when crime was really on the rise, and this is sort of how we got to this tough on crime era because the numbers were bad, homicides were up, there's a lot of gang violence going on, and so we got very reactionary to this and we did these tough on crime laws. You know, we were sitting, we had juveniles that were getting executed in some states. Like Texas didn't actually, they had to be forced by a court case to stop that practice in like 2005. So this was going on. And th- the idea was you would just punish everybody as harsh as possible, no matter what. And that's what happened to Jessel. So I looked at the coverage and there was nothing. There was like a, I thought, well, surely if we sent a 15 year old away for life, there would be like some coverage of it. There would be like a little brief in the paper because it wasn't unusual then. And, you know, the time I did the story, was like 2012, I think. Um, So there had been a Supreme Court case, Miller v. Alabama, that came along and said, you can't just send children away to prison for life because they're fundamentally different. Their brain isn't, you know, I don't know if you guys, you're Claremont McKenna students, for those of you who aren't 25 yet, especially the men, your prefrontal cortex of your brain is not fully developed until you're 25, and so sentencing 13 and 15-year-olds to life in a prison doesn't make sense from a developmental standpoint. It is overly harsh, and that was the 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 gist of what that ruling was about: is that they went back and reviewed all these sentences. But At the time, it hadn't like it, it applies retroactively, and people who were sentenced under that have are now supposed to be reviewed, but this had not been determined at the time that it was retroactive so Jessel was just sitting there in prison he was almost 30 at this time he had spent his entire adult life in prison he had this lovely woman who had married him later in life while he was incarcerated so they you know they he got arrested for that when he was 13 they lost touch I think she might have been his girlfriend right before that happened in middle school they lost touch for the years but then they got back in touch through mutual friends and she married him while he was in prison and it, I don't know that I would have given Jessel, the time and attention or his story if it hadn't been for Sharmadia. Because I thought, who is this bright, lovely girl who's <laughs> sticking up? Like, she's not the kind of girl that you think would just go marry anybody. So I went and I did that, started Met Jaisal, and did I had to go find everybody from his life that was still alive and, and doc- document how the system had failed and how that had happened. And it is very much just because this, it is a system and people get caught up in it. And sometimes, the things that we think are supposed to work or protect people, they don't work like they're supposed to. And there's not enough oversight. And so that's when the reporters have to come in and, and do it. But there's a happy ending. Jessel, it was a life sentence, but he had, uh, he was eligible for parole. So after we did the story, he got paroled. Um, it took a while because the state of Oklahoma does not parole people quickly or easily. Um, they made him do some vocational training because it is, is a concern. We, When you put people in maximum security prison at age 15, this is not great for their brain health. (laughs) You know, he had a really rough life. He got into fights in prison, and, you know, he had to learn how to be really tough. Um, But he actually has kind of a gentle soul now, and he got paroled. I was there the day he was paroled with Sir with his lawyer, with his family, and um, a year or two ago, they had their first baby. Jacory. And so I got to go to the baby shower, and I get to see Jacory's baby picture. So every now and then stuff like that happens, and I try to hold on to that, Um, but it doesn't. Sometimes you do the story, and those things don't happen. But it's nice. It's nice when those things happen, and it's tough because as a reporter, you try to keep some distance, even when things are all that done. But um, that's one of those moments where you're like, Okay, <laughs> I can make an impact somehow. It, might it doesn't always happen like you'd like, and sometimes it takes a lot longer, but it's, it was neat to see that. And it was nice to have that moment. And, um, you know, not to, I don't want to, like, there were people who thought that when Jethro got out, that he wouldn't, that he would just go. You, there's an attitude for people to don't know people who are incarcerated, like, uh, well, he's just ruined now. We just ruined him, no way. And by all accounts, the way that things treated Jessel and the way the system treated, like that could have been his attitude. He could have taken that forward, but um, he's been out and he's never been back in. He stayed out and he's working hard, raising family, just so grateful to be out. Um, and I, I'm glad he proved people wrong. Mm-hmm.
0: That is a great story. Thank you for sharing. I'm glad we could end on that. Kind of <laughs> so note. Give you guys a hopeful, positive note. Yeah, if you guys, if, it, if the
2: people listening to the podcast from looking up, his name is Jessel Wilson. And if you search yeah. that in Pulse World, you might find a story.
0: Great. Well, that is all the time that we have for today. Uh, thank you, Carrie, so much for joining us. And to our listeners, remember to stay hungry. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me.